Well, good afternoon. It's great to see you. Um, we're continuing our studies in the book of Ephesians uh, and chapter 1. Um, I feel a little bit of a strange emotion today. Um, let me tell you why. When we were children, we used to get up on Christmas Day and uh, we'd be so excited. And my parents would make us have breakfast upstairs before we were allowed to go downstairs. I don't know if that happened in your house. At the time, we thought that was the height of cruelty. But I suppose they knew if we didn't have breakfast first, we'd never have breakfast because we'd just be tearing into presents and messing around downstairs. So the emotion I have tonight is a little bit like that emotion, uh, a feeling of being very excited but having to slow down and be patient. Um, In our studies, we've reached uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. And the reason I'm excited is because I want to get to verse 10. I think there's a strong argument to say that verse 10 is the key verse in the whole book of Ephesians. Um, In verse 10, Paul says that God's purpose in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment is to bring everything in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ for things to be put back together under the authority and lordship of Christ I think there's a strong argument that that's the theme for the whole book Um, it's the pinnacle of Paul's theology we've already seen Paul's vision stretching back into the past in verse 4 he says he chose us in him before the creation of the world and now by verse 10 he's talking about the times will have reached their fulfilment and the end of time Paul's vision is an incredible vision and I think what Paul is doing is trying to show his readers that their story is part of a much bigger story Um, when you think of the way we've broken this chapter up we've been asking questions and it has been quite deliberate and the the questions have all started with asking a question about me well I don't just mean me I mean you as well me as in me if you can think of saying that about you can I really change do I really belong last time we were thinking can I recover when I mess up the answer to all those questions is yes a resounding yes but only if your story and my story are a small part of a much bigger story that's going on that Paul alludes to in verse 10 verse 10 tells us that history is moving towards a fulfilment, a conclusion. It's moving along a trajectory towards restoration and recovery and repair and fulfilment. God is carefully and wisely working out his plan, relentlessly even, working out his plan to fix things that are broken. It's a painful and difficult process. It even involved God becoming human and entering our broken world the seeds of a completely new kingdom have been sown and one day Paul, the pinnacle of Paul's theology here I think the pinnacle of biblical theology is that one day that seed will come to a full and glorious and satisfying fruition and those who build their lives on Christ now will sing then like they've never sung before The vision of God's purposes in verse 10, I think, changes everything for Paul. Um, 
for a start, remember that Paul here is in prison. It, it, is, it is very possible that Paul here is handcuffed to a Roman soldier. And while his body is confined, his spirit is absolutely soaring. Do you, do you get that? It, he, so I, I really want to get to verse 10. Do you get that? <laughs> I really want to get to verse 10. Like a child at Christmas. We entitled this series Captivated. Is that not what we long for? I, I, don't want to, I, I don't want to be obsessing about trivial things. I don't want to waste my life being petty. Neither do I want the delight of my heart to be wondering about my own reflection in the mirror. I know that I am me and you are you but I, I hope that we sense that something is happening here that is so much bigger than just me and just us I want to grasp more fully this big story that I'm now part of this is when I feel most alive and most truly human so this week, my emotion is a little bit strange because I feel like I want to run downstairs very fast and open the presents in verse 10. And I keep tripping over verse 9. And Paul introduces the pinnacle of his theological outlook by saying something very striking in verse 9. And he, that is God, made known to us he made known to us the mystery of his will. Why, why do I, this week's been really like, well, it's not been hard. I mean, it's the best job in the world. It's not been hard, but it has been hard. It's been a, because I keep tripping over verse 9. Here's the deal. The reason I keep tripping over verse 9 is, and, I, and I'll share something of my heart with you now. This year... If I could sum up this past year and add up all the questions that people have asked me as, as a minister, as a pastor, if I could sum it all up into one question, and sometimes people have asked me this question in great desperation, it would be this question, how can I know God? I, for some reason this year that is a great question to be asking but for some reason this year that has been the question that has dominated many of my own conversations with, with some of you with people outside of our church um, sometimes it's been people who are not Christians and um, in, in that I, I suppose sometimes people who are not Christians will say to me how on earth can I know God? What is that all about? And, and I suppose here in this question, there are all kinds of important issues about the Bible along the lines of evidence. You know, I, I want to know if I can trust this thing that you're trying to talk to me about. But sometimes it is Christians who are miserable. Uh, Did you sometimes feel miserable? I sometimes feel miserable. Sometimes it is Christians, 
people who would claim to have a faith in Jesus, but their faith has deteriorated and shrunk and dwindled almost to the point of being extinct. One person I know that you don't, so I'm not breaching any confidentiality, and you're not second-guessing, is it the person sitting next to me? Someone I know, but you don't know, said recently, I felt nothing for a couple of years. Notice that. I, I felt nothing. Professing Christian, someone who is part of a fairly vibrant church, coming to church every week, I felt nothing for over two years I'm in church physically but in private it feels like there's nothing going on between me and God how can I know God do you feel like that I'm at an age now when uh, many of my contemporaries are parents who have kids who have been raised in a Christian environment and are going off all excited to uni. And then it dawns on them, they've grown up maybe in a Christian home, they've been part of a church, they go off to uni, and it dawns on them that other people have a completely different outlook. And amazingly, they seem happy, fulfilled, and it's a massive culture shock, and they begin to wonder about whether they really know anything for sure. If I've been brainwashed, was grown up in a Christian home, a kind of illusion. How can I know that what I believe is really true? Seems like other people don't believe the things that I've been taught, and now I'm not so sure. And there's a crisis going on. Some of that is part of growing up and engaging with life. But I, I, I have a big concern, and this is not so much for our church here, but I have a big concern that many churches do not cultivate an environment that is conducive to really knowing God. Churches do not cultivate an environment that's conducive to really knowing God. I I think often it feels to some of our younger people, older teenagers, younger people, that our faith is actually a form of escapism that is not that well thought through. Uh, What our younger ones need, what what they yearn for strongly, is authenticity. They want to give their lives to something that is worthwhile. They have questions about foundations. If if you're an older person, I don't mean a very old person, but if you're an older person today, past uni age, the younger ones around you want to ask you if they had the courage, how do you know that what you believe is true? Maybe this talk might encourage some of them to come and ask you, how do you know what you believe is true? Let me challenge you. If a younger person came to you and asked, how do you know God? What would you base your confidence on? How would you answer them? Do they see something in you of confidence, joy, hope? Or do they see someone who's privately felt nothing? I I worry that some of our answers to that question would not bear serious scrutiny. There's a third idea I want to touch on though, and it's this. Um, If you're a Christian, your basic understanding of how you know God 
and how people in general can get to know God will massively shape, surely, will massively shape how you talk to other people about your faith, won't it? Um, in, in other words, your answer to the question, how can I know God, will determine how you do evangelism. Wouldn't it? Is that fair? So, let, let, me, let, me, let me say this. If your evangelism kisses off, so someone comes to you and says, how do you know God? If your evangelism consists of, I know God is real because he answered my prayer for healing. Or, I know God is real because God has made me happy. Or, I know God is real because, isn't it obvious? Or some other personal plea, then I think you need to grasp what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 1 far more deeply than you do now it isn't that Paul couldn't or even wouldn't have said those things and I hope I'm not belittling those answers he just doesn't start there because the story he's part of is such a bigger story than that sometimes I think what's going on often in conversations like that is that we feel a need somehow to prove that God's word is true by pointing to something else we, we don't have a confidence that God's word is true. So, we, you know, God's word, you can believe this because look at this thing over here that's true. That proves that God's word is true. We can sense people saying to us, prove it, give me some evidence. The, the problem is that when we begin to play by those rules, what we're really doing is accepting some assumptions. One is the assumption that we are neutral an objective we can assess evidence that we see like a court like a judge could in a court give me some evidence and then I'll make a, a sensible decision but the truth is that we're not neutral we can never truly be dispassionate and objective the Bible actually tells us that we are morally flawed we have a lot of inherent bias that blinds us to the truth that we should see. This is why in the Gospel, think about the Gospels, you read the four Gospels in the Bible, there are people all over the Gospels who see miracles that Jesus did. The Son of God incarnate. People sometimes say to me, oh, I've only been there when Jesus was around. I say to them, read the Gospels. The people who did see Jesus didn't believe in him. The Son of God doing miracles. And people walked away and said, no, I'm not having that. They saw the evidence with their own eyes. But there was a moral bias in their heart that led them to reject him. And in the end, Jesus died pretty much friendless, crucified by the culture that he came to do good within. So we're not quite as objective as we think we are. Also, here's another assumption. I hope you're with me. You, you can tell this is a passion. What we're really saying when we play these rules is, I, I would believe God's word. I really would. If I could find something else that would back it up. Do you get that idea? I, 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 if I could just find something that would prove to me that the Bible is true, then I would really believe it. I want to suggest to you the problem with that is that whatever you use 
to kind of back up the truth of the Bible actually becomes the thing that you're putting your faith in over and above the truth of God's word. Can you see that? You're actually putting your confidence in something else, this thing or this thing, that seems to give credence to the Bible. In the Gospels, I think Jesus simply called this what it is. We would call it... We, I, I'm, I'm not decrying honest searching at all, but I think often what we call open-minded scientific inquiry, Jesus would say, you just don't believe what I've just told you. You don't believe the words I've spoken to you. So we need to be very careful if we're going to say that we'll only believe the Bible when something proves it to us. God has spoken to us in his word. And of, of, that, that will cohere with the reality that we see. But if we base our faith on something else, rather than God's word, we'll always have a shaky foundation. Anyway, let's get back to Ephesians. Paul starts in a very different place to where I think many Christians in our modern culture would start. Paul is excited here and he says in verse 9, God made known to us the mystery of his will. Paul's foundation, Paul's basis, the place that he stands is right here in verse 9. God has made known to us the mystery of his will. How can I know God? Paul's theology of knowledge begins right here in the awareness that the God of the Bible is a God who makes things known. The God of the Bible is a God of self-disclosure. The God of the Bible is not a thing or an it. He is personal. And he moves out of himself to tell us who he is and what he's like and I, I think that is the most encouraging and helpful and even liberating thing that we could know. That God is self-disclosing. One, one of the things that I want to just address is, is this. And I, I hope you're with me. I, I hope I'm not going too fast. I, I think we live in really interesting times. Um, and one of the interesting things about the times we live in is that people's, people's understanding of how we actually know things is changing. Do you, do you get that? A hundred years ago, the way that people would think they could know things is very different to what it is today. I don't think there's been a period in history where that has changed as dramatically as it has in the last few years. So... I want to try and show you something. This is not really from the Bible, but it will help us with a backdrop. Here, here's a little cartoon. Modern man. Mr. Modern man. When, when I talk about modern man, uh, I'm using the philosophical term there. Modernism is, think, think like industrial revolution. Guys who lived in this time considered themselves to be modern. And so that age became known as the age of modernism. It's not very modern now because it's like 100 years ago. But this is modern man, as opposed to ancient man. Modern man. In modernism, so I'm, I'm thinking a hundred years ago, the idea was that the truth was out there. 
And what, what human beings really need to do is to think, to be objective, to use our powers of observation and logic and then we will know the truth, we'll find the truth that is outside of us, out there. Truth was considered to be absolute and unchanging. We might disagree on what that truth is, but there's no disagreement on the fact that it is out there. So people would argue and debate what that truth might look like, but they did so on the basis that it was something to be sought after. The emergence of the scientific method brought great optimism. Human beings are really clever. We can solve problems. And eventually, if we're really careful and think hard enough and debate and discuss things and educate each other enough, we might actually create utopia. Peace and harmony in the world. There'll be no more war, no more famine. We'll solve our problems by human rationality the great, the great problem of course, here he is, objective very absolute very rational looks quite clever doesn't he the problem was that the 1900s were an absolute disaster and all the optimism evaporated in the context of two world wars more bloodshed in one century than the whole of human history before. Human cleverness delivered technology, but it did not deliver peace, harmony, unity, trouble and strife everywhere. Modernism didn't work. And towards the end of the 1900s, I think it was a French guy, coined another term, which he very helpfully called postmodern. Philosophers are right clever with their tiles, aren't they? Postmodern. We're getting up to date now. Here's postmodern man. And the big difference now is, truth now is not out there something to be sought. Truth is in here. It's inside of us. There's no absolute truth. There's no big story. The truth is whatever you work it out to be for you. Sometimes I'll say to people, I'm a Christian, and they'll go, that's nice for you. Don't work for me. There's no absolute truth. If it works for you, it makes you happy. Whatever flows your boat, mate. It's fantastic. It's not for me, though. Truth is not something to discuss even. It is whatever you want it to be. No one can tell you you're wrong. And you can't tell anyone else that they're wrong. Not that you would ever do that in a rude way, of course. But there's no even debate. What matters is working out what is true for you. It's very subjective. Truth now is relative, not absolute. The focus now is not on whether something is true, but on whether it makes you happy. If it feels right, must be right. If it makes you happy, who could have an argument with that? So there, there's a little survey of 100 years of history. Modern man, postmodern man. Truth out there or truth in here? What is happening here is that human beings all over the place are looking for meaning. What is true? How can we know it? Should we use our heads 
like modern man or our hearts like postmodern man? I want to say that we live in the most confusing and frustrating and rapidly changing and yet exciting and exhilarating times that there's possibly ever been in human history. And in many ways we could characterise this part of human history as head versus heart. As we experience things in life, how do we determine the rightness or the truth of something? Should we trust our thinking or should we trust our feelings? Should we trust our rationality or should we trust our emotions? What I find really interesting about this is that the Bible has known this all along. The Bible is not modernist or postmodernist. Both of these periods in history can teach us a lot. There's good and bad in both. But in the end, they're both too simple. We are more complex than either of these two characters. And what we find when we come to the Bible is that God created human beings in his image, with heads and hearts. We can think and feel things because that's what God is like. And transcending all of that is a revelation that God has made. He has made known to us the mystery of his will. In other words, you cannot work your way to God using either your powers of logic or by following your heart. But when you do engage with what God has said about him and about you, it will be logically coherent and emotionally satisfying. Does that make sense? You can't depend on those things to find God, but God's revelation is coherent with our thinking and feeling. I hope that makes sense. Let's get into uh, the, the verse, verse 9. This, this is uh, me tripping over verse 9 in my enthusiasm to get to verse 10. This is the nutritious breakfast before we can open the presents next week. Okay. Paul speaks about the mystery of his will. What does the world mean when it hears the word mystery? I think the idea of mystery appeals to postmodern man because postmodern man says, do you know what? It's impossible to truly know anything for sure. Nobody really knows. I mean, God, I'm sure there is a God. There's a mystery. It's a mystery. God is incomprehensible. Mysterious. Vague. There may be a God, but if there is, it's not possible to really know Him. People who think like this will tend to say things like, oh, it's good to have a sense of the divine. You need to be connected to the life force. If you watch children's films, you might be thinking about the circle of life. Marvellous concept. On a practical level, people who think like this would say, what you really need to do in your life is to live a life of love. And if you're sincere and you're a loving person, everything will work out fine in the end. No idea why. It is a big mystery. It's beyond us. 
the problem with all that kind of talk is that, of course, God becomes whatever you want him to be, doesn't he? You actually end up knowing nothing, precisely nothing, about God at all. It is no better than mysterious guesswork. And I I have a little concern here, and I can see some of this in my own heart, that morally, that kind of talk about God is very attractive to us. Because we can use it to let ourselves off the hook, can't we? I mean, as long as you try your best, and you try and love people, and you're sincere, if it feels right and it makes you happy, who's going to deny you that? Whatever floats your boat. It's mysterious. You go to, I've said this many times, you go to a bookshop in Meadow Hall and one of the biggest sections is the section on spirituality. If you could dream it up, somebody will have written a book on it. The idea of mystery, mystery. There's plenty of people out there as well. I'm I'm going off piece there now. There's plenty of people here on the subject of mystery as well who'll say, listen, I know the secret, but don't tell anyone. If you come and spend some time with me, I'll let you into the secret and then you'll be enlightened too. That's how cults start, isn't it? There's a secret mystery over here. I've got a hotline to some angelic being and they have revealed it to me. And if you come and join my team, I'll share it with you. You can be initiated into the secret. And all those poor other people who don't know the secret, they'll, be, they'll remain unenlightened. It's our cult star. It's a way of controlling people. I think that was going on in the first century. Paul's right and right into that. I think that's why he uses the word mystery. What he means is something very different. So, that idea of mystery. I think when a postmodern person reads this, he made known the mystery. He made known to us the mystery of his will. Ha <laughs> ha, mystery. That's what I've always thought God was like. A big, fat mystery. Paul doesn't mean that at all. So, let's explore what Paul means. Um, the mystery of his will is not vague, mysterious or unknowable, but it is something that we cannot grasp on our own. What Paul is saying here, the reason Paul used the word mystery is because this is something that if we were left to our own devices, we would never be able to work out on our own. According to Paul, God is not an incomprehensible mystery, The truth is, he is undiscoverable by the power of human logic. In other words, God is not some kind of force or green mist floating around in the solar system somewhere. God is not nature. He's not some vague power or life force. He is not a mystery in the sense of being unknowable. He's a mystery in the sense that we wouldn't find him by using either our intellect or our feelings on their own. Louise read very helpfully to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Perhaps you can just flick back there with me. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is all about knowledge and wisdom. And just look with me at uh, verse uh, 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 21 this is Paul the same guy writing 
And he says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased to the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. In the wisdom of God, the world, through its own wisdom, did not know him. In verse 20, Paul says, where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? We could say exactly that now, 2,000 years later. The wisdom, the scholarship, the philosophy of this world is unable to deduce or perceive or understand God. Yet God has been pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe verse 22 is really interesting Paul splits people up into Jews or Gentiles or Greeks and he says there Jews want to see tangible miraculous evidence they want something they give us some evidence show us something dramatic the Pharisees said this to Jesus give us a sign Jesus said I'm not giving you a sign you've, you've got enough You've had 2,000 years of history and got the whole of the Old Testament and you're asking me for a sign? What planet are you on? Jews want to see miracles. Greeks, they're not too fussed about miracles. What they want is to see sophisticated arguments. Do you remember when Paul went to Athens and they invited him into the Areopagus, Mars Hill, and he debated with them. What's this babbler talking about, they said? It's unsophisticated. It's too simple for us. We're intellectually elite. We don't want something that a child can understand. We want something philosophical. Sophisticated. We'll believe the Bible when it's philosophically satisfying. Paul's point here is that no human being can know God except by revelation from God. This is evident in Jesus' own life and ministry. Um, There's a great um, little pinnacle in Matthew's Gospel. You don't need to turn to it, but Jesus uh, says to disciples, Who do people say that I am? And uh, and they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, come back from the dead. Still others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Jesus looks his disciples right in the eye and says, What about you? you think questions who do you say I am and Peter who was always the first to speak often his mouth started before his brain did but he dives in and he says you are the Christ the son of the living God and Jesus replies very interestingly and says to him blessed are you Simon son of Jonah for this was not revealed to you by man but by my Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, you are a happy man because my Father in heaven has opened your eyes to see who I really am. What a privilege. He he hadn't worked it out. He did use his brain, but he hadn't arrived at that conclusion by his powers of logic The Father had revealed it to him. 
So, my, my second point is the same as the first, but the opposite way around. <laughs> this mystery is something we cannot grasp on our own, but we can know it with God's help. Just come with me back to Ephesians chapter 1 then, and uh, let's just have a look at the different clauses there. They're, they're on the top of the sheet if you've got a handout. Um, verse 9 actually gives us a lot of clues as to how this mystery is made known. First of all, God is a personal and relational God. Paul doesn't speak here about a life force, a philosophy or an ism. Paul says, he, he made known to us. That is personal and relational. The second thing I want you to notice in verse 9 is that God is also a planning and a purposeful God. Um... He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. This is the mystery of his will. God has a plan, a purpose, a scheme, a will. We've already seen that this plan stretches back before time. In verse 10 we've seen that it stretches beyond time, beyond the end of the age. History, according to Paul, is not random. Neither is it going round in circles like the circle of life. Paul doesn't believe in karma. History is going somewhere. And Paul says the whole of this plan is centred on a person. God's Son, Jesus Christ. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. I think it's really helpful to see something of God being a trinity here. We've not touched on this yet, but in Ephesians chapter 1, you could almost argue in this first light eulogy that Paul speaks about God the Father first, verses 3, down to the verses we're thinking about. Then he seems to speak about Jesus. The Father plans. Jesus comes to deliver what the Father's planned. And then the last few verses speak about the work of the Holy Spirit in revealing and illuminating all of that. Father, Son and Spirit. I think it's helpful to think about God having a little conference. I don't, I don't know if you've ever been in meetings at work. Think about this. God having a little conference within himself. Father, Son and Spirit. No boardroom, there's no meeting place. This is before creation even. The Father, here's what we're going to do. The Son says, I'll go, I'll do it. Pick me, pick me. And the Spirit involved in that whole process, as they discuss and plan and ponder, it seemed good to them for things to unfold in the way that they have. There's a plan behind all things. This is the mystery of his will. Verse 11 tells us that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of this will. Everything that happens. There's another little clause in there. Oh, I didn't put it on the screen. But it's on the handout. That God is also a pleasure-seeking God. He made known to us 
the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. In other words, all of this planning and delivering, revealing, it pleases God. God is a God who does the things that make him happy. God is a God who does the things that bring him the most exquisite pleasure. I don't know if people's conception of God includes that. This is a God who is driven by joyful creativity. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. But last week we were thinking about verse 7, but we didn't really touch on verse 8. In, well, the end of verse 7 into verse 8. Paul says in verse 7 that he redeemed us through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. There's a connection there with this next verse that, do you remember we said at the start, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. And the rest of it is all the blessings. He chose us. He adopted us. He redeemed us. Here's another one. He made known to us the mystery of his will too. This is included in the blessings that are there in verse 3. God has been at work in the world doing things, but he's also been at work bringing you to the place where you understand what he's done. Does that make sense? And that is part of his grace. His grace has been there in the work of Jesus, but his grace has also been there in your life, bringing you to the point where you came to understand what Jesus has done. That is part of God's grace and kindness, to give us understanding of what he's done. Sometimes our kids at school, when they were at primary school, they had a thing called show and tell. Are you familiar with that concept, show and tell? So kids, they'd bring something in and they'd show it, and then they'd talk all about it. Show and tell. This is the ultimate show and tell. This is God saying, you'll never guess what I've done. You'll never guess what I've done. Do you know anything about my son Jesus? He's amazing. 2,000 years ago he was born in a stable. He grew up. Eventually he went to a cross and there he died in your place so that you could be forgiven. So that I can be your father. Can you see what's happening? God, by his grace he did it. And by his grace he reveals it to us in time. He does things and he reveals things. How can I know God? This is a biblical truth here that should give us great hope. That the foundation of our faith does not lie in us. It is not unfair. It isn't too hard. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't just for really clever philosophers. It is known and grasped because God is kind and makes known to us the mystery of his will so that we can grasp it and stand on it and live in it. And that means that it is open to every single person who has the ears to hear it. I love that passage in, in Matthew's Gospel 
Um, actually, let, let's turn to, to it, Matthew chapter 11. The, this is a good passage to meditate on if you get a spare moment this week. So we're jumping around a little bit today. I'm sorry about that. I hope I'm not giving you indigestion. Matthew chapter 11. Um, the end of the chapter. It's on page 977. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. And it's almost at that point that Jesus gets a little bit excited in his prayer. And he goes, yes, 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 Father, for this was your good pleasure. It's like Jesus becomes excited as he remembers what God is doing in the world. There is no room for human pride here. Those who are wise in their own eyes can't see what is staring them in the face and yet God in his grace has revealed it to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Jesus goes on to say, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then Jesus says the most glorious words in all the Bible, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You want to know God? Come to me. You feel confused, tired, uncertain? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light it's a great passage that let me, let me just stop here and ask have you ever wondered why Paul writes this stuff down he's in prison From a worldly perspective, you'd say his life's been a bit of a disaster. Shipwrecks and stonings and being beaten and he's constantly up in court for preaching the gospel. Why does he even bother? Where does his motivation come from? Why is he so full of it? The clue is in the very first verse. When Paul writes, he says, Hello, my name's Paul. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is the word apostle means messenger. Paul, his whole identity was this God has chosen me to proclaim this mystery. That's my whole life. It's what I get up in the morning for, it's what God has called me to do. All over the New Testament in Paul's writings you get this sense that Paul was conscious that he'd been sent to preach, to proclaim God's word. We haven't got time to look at more but 
we'll, we'll get to Ephesians chapter 3 in a couple of years. Um, Ephesians chapter 3, just turn over the page there and you'll see something of this. Let me just give you a glimpse. It, Paul seems to start saying something in chapter 3 and then he has a little detour. Do you ever do that when you're writing something or talking to someone? For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, hang on a minute, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. This six, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. That's verse 10, all things being united under Christ. To make plain, verse 9, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. If you go right to the end of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 19, Paul even covets their prayers. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. God forbid that any preacher should stand up and look timid. What? How can a preacher stand up and go, oh, I'm not really sure? What do you think? If, it, if God has sent someone to proclaim his message, should it not come with trumpets? That Paul says, Pray for me that I wouldn't be a coward but would declare it fearlessly, as I should do. Listen then, how can you know God? The, the, the reason I'm talking about Paul there is because God uses people to proclaim his truth. The proclamation of the gospel is really crucial. When you hear his word, God speaks through it. You, you don't want to know my opinions. What you need to hear is the life-giving word of God. That was Paul's job. He made known to us the mystery of his will. I haven't got anything clever to say to you except that Jesus Christ is the key to everything. He came from the Father to bring salvation to you. He died to save you from your sins. And so my message, like Paul's message, is very simple. Stop stumbling about in the dark and come and put your faith in the Lord Jesus. One final thought then, and then we're done. The word mystery also has this slant on it I'll just finish with this brief point this is something that can be known but we can never fully plumb the depths of it you can grasp it a child could grasp it but you can never fully plumb the depths of it you can understand it in your head and yet ever be learning something new this can fire your heart and emotions, but it will never ever be something that you can take for granted. The mystery of his will is not something we could have worked out, 
But we can know it because he reveals it and it will ever be our privilege to marvel at it. That is the point of the word mystery. Do you know what? Christian people of all the people on the face of this planet should be the human beings above all others that are living in a constant sense of awe and amazement. The mystery of his will has been made known to us. Do you feel awestruck by the gospel? Too many times we settle for boxing things off, neat and tidy, putting things in little pigeonholes. We've lost our sense of wonder and amazement. He has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. You have to come back next week to find out what presents there are under the tree. Because we tripped over verse 9 before we could get to verse 10. <laughs> Wish I could preach two sermons. To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. I want to be a part of that, do you? Come and trust him. Come and know him. Come and see that he has made known to you the mystery of his will. And let it fill you with joy and amazement. Amen. We're going to sing.